Amen. This Sunday, we celebrate Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is known as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it was, it was pretty cool to see the kids walk down with those palm branches and lay those down. But Jesus had come into Jerusalem many times before, but this time was different. There are all four gospel accounts mention the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, and Mark's account specifically addresses how a, a large crowd of people had surrounded him and laid these leafy branches down and closed before him. And it says that those who were there shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna in the Greek literally means, I beg you to save us. Please deliver us. Now, there are several main takeaways that we should see from this, but there are a few that I want to point out really briefly. And the first is that Christ came to save us. There is a ton of prophecy in the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, and we're not going to get into all of it today. But he, he came to save us. He didn't come to wage war against the Romans like so many of his followers thought. They wanted another exodus, but this time instead of them leaving Jerusalem, they wanted the Romans to leave. Christ, they wanted an end to Roman oppression, but Christ didn't come to ravage and ransack the Romans. He came to establish a, a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly kingdom at the time. The people would not fully understand this, and instead of seeing a conquering king, they would see what they thought was a bloodied blasphemer. The second takeaway we should see is that our circumstances can change in an instant. In a matter of moments, in the blink of an eye, in a heartbeat, seemingly overnight, or before we even know what's fully happening, our circumstances can change. Now, remember, this didn't catch Christ off guard. He knew what he was coming to do. He was fully God and he was fully man. But don't forget that one moment he was riding into Jerusalem being hailed a king on the back of a donkey, and the very next minute people were shouting cries of crucify him. How quickly things can change for us. A horrible diagnosis, the loss of a job, the death of a family member, unstable markets, domestic and international issues that we see just all over the time, all over the place. Things can change remarkably quickly, and the only way to combat this is to be anchored in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lastly, we must understand that we are no different than those who were with Christ that same day. Oftentimes, we have ourselves as the heroes of our own stories. Even subconsciously, we have ourselves as the heroes of our own stories. But we are no different. We would have been right there with them, chanting Hosanna as Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then less than a week later, would have been asking for him to be traded for a murderer like Barabbas and screaming crucify him. Uh, as I sat down this week to prepare a sermon, I actually made some notes up for a sermon on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Because it's Palm Sunday. That's what you do, right? There are thousands of churches all across the nation who are, who, somebody's going to step in their pulpit and they're going to preach a sermon on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And that is just not what I fed, felt led to do this morning. I could not come to peace with it. And I thought, you know what, I've, I've been in, involved in church for most of my adult life. I know many of you have done the same. And, and likely we have forgotten more than we, than we uh, remember. But you know what, there's plenty of stuff in here that 
I can't remember if I heard a message on or not. So I prayed. I said, Lord, just lay something on my heart that you would have me to preach. Because I did not feel led to preach a message out of the, out of the gospel accounts of the triumphal entry. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think we should ever preach something just because it's the expectation. As long as we're preaching something from the word of God, I think, I think he, he will be honored by that. So today, we are going to talk about some things that the Lord hates we often have much conversation on the loving nature and the loving attributes of God. Even people who don't necessarily follow Christ will speak of his loving nature. They will talk about his love. There are, however, things that God hates, and we must study those things as well. This is vital because it helps us evaluate our lives as followers of Christ in order to make sure we are doing what we are called to do. So this morning, we are going to be in Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, as you've seen on the screen, verses 16 through 19. And please turn with me there, and when you found your place, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love you, and we thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Uh, none more important than sending your Son to die on the cross for us, Lord, that we may have everlasting life. Lord, I thank you so much for what you did for us on the cross. Lord, I'm thankful for your loving attributes. But Father, I'm also thankful for the things that you've given us in Scripture that you hate so that we can have that as a guide as well. So Father, I just pray this morning that you'd speak through me, Lord, that you would bless those who hear this message, Lord. And Lord, that you'd use it to convict each and every one of us. We do love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. King Solomon wrote much of the Proverbs. And he was a very wise king. You know why? Because he asked the Lord for wisdom. He asked the Lord for wisdom. So the book of Proverbs is full of rich wisdom that we should be studying and learning. In 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, we see how Solomon acquired his wisdom. Listen to this. 1 Kings starting in verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. God said, ask, what should I give you? And Solomon replied, you have shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity. You have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant a receptive heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you have requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you have asked for discernment for yourself to administer justice, 
I will therefore do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no king will be your equal during your entire life. Now, not only did Solomon acquire understanding and wisdom from the Lord, but also riches and honor. Solomon was unbelievably wealthy, wealth like we've never seen before. When, when I think of wealthy people, I think of people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk. When I remember one time in college, I read a short story about Bill Gates, and it said that if Bill Gates were walking down the road and he saw a $100 bill on the ground, that it would be more detrimental to his health to bend over and pick up that $100 bill than it was even worth to him to begin with. In other words, he has a greater chance of bending over to pick up that $100 bill and throwing out his back or falling and hurting himself than the $100 bill is even worth. I don't know about you, I'm going to break my neck trying to get to a $100 bill on the ground. <laughs> Elon Musk, I recently read about him, that if you were to earn $10,000 a day, $10,000 a day every single day, 365 days a year, from the time of the building of the Great Pyramids in Egypt to today, you would have only amassed about 15% of his total wealth. That's unfathomable wealth. Solomon was more wealthy than both those guys. It is estimated that his wealth by today's measures would be about $2 trillion. That's unbelievable, $2 trillion. Think about that. Here's what's even more incredible, is that his wisdom was comparable to his wealth. And that's because he asked the Lord for wisdom. So here's someone whose writings we should really study. We should really commit to studying this and learning this and writing this on our hearts. So we see these, we read these, let's, let's focus on these. So Proverbs 6, starting in verse 16, the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. So the Bible's clear that God does indeed hate certain things. These are things that are wrong and detestable, and God hates them. Now, God does not overlook sin. Uh, Solomon points out here that there are these things that God hates, and in fact, there's other places in the Bible where there is mention of things that God hates. For example, uh, in Isaiah 61, it says God hates robbery and wrong. In Zechariah 8, it says that God hates the planning of evil in the heart against one another. Revelation 2 says God hates the work of the Nicolaitans, which implies that there were dictators in their church there. If God hates them, we also should hate these things. God does indeed hate things. This much is clear. So if God hates them, we should hate them. These are things that are grossly immoral and uh, they greatly offend the Lord. So Solomon here says that the Lord hates six things, but then he says, in fact, seven are detestable to him. So which is it? Is it, is it six or is it seven? I mean, what's the deal with this writing? Well, this was a form of Hebrew literature. This was normal to them. This was normal conversation. It sounds a little strange to us to hear, God hates six things, in fact, seven. I mean, that sounds a little odd to us, but this was normal. This was normal Hebrew literature to them. And we'll see why in just a minute, because a lot of times the seventh thing was kind of a summary of the other six. So we'll see that here in just a well, in, in just a minute as well. So Solomon begins with arrogant eyes. The Lord hates arrogant eyes. Your version of the Bible may say proud or a haughty look. 
What does it mean to have a haughty look or proud eyes? Well, it's actually a spirit that's within us. How do we look upon other people? Do we think of ourselves as better? Now, we're not talking about in the spirit of competition, okay, on a, on a football field or a basketball court. There should be a little bit of an edge about you when you're standing out there and you're getting ready to go to competition. Our team's better. We're going to win. But when we're looking at individuals, this is like looking at somebody and saying, my intellect is more superior to that of this person. Why is that person in that position and not me? I could do a far better job than they're doing. That's what it means to have haughty eyes. We're saying that our intellect is better. We overestimate our own abilities and underestimate the abilities of others. These people can be very difficult. These people aren't generally very teachable. You can't tell them anything. And they can be very judgmental. And maybe at some point you have been guilty of this. I know if I'm honest with myself, I have been guilty of this at some point or another. I actually read a story once of a young woman who went to her pastor and she said, Pastor, she said, I, I, we've got to talk. She said, I, I'm guilty of sinning. He said, all right, well, what's going on? She said, well, I'm young and beautiful. And she said, I can't help, but every time I walk into the congregation at church, she said, I can't help but notice that I am by far the most beautiful woman in the whole congregation. She said, no one else even comes close to comparing to my beauty. What can I do to stop sinning? The pastor looked at her, he said, oh, well, dear, he said, that's not a sin. That's just a mistake. <laughs> the point is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, number one. And number two, we can't have that haughty, proud, arrogant look about ourselves, can we? It's a sin. It's a great offense to the Lord, and he hates it. The dictionary defines haughty eyes as blatantly and disdainfully proud. It is the opposite of being humble is what it is. When I was a kid and something concerned me maybe a little too much, you know what my dad would tell me? He'd say, son, the world doesn't revolve around you. Maybe you've heard that as well. I can tell by some of the laughter. You've probably heard it once, once or twice yourself. Arrogant eyes is a look and a spirit of thinking the world revolves around us. In fact, later in the Bible, in the New Testament, both James and Peter warned of this as well. He says that God actively opposes and resists the proud. I don't want God actively opposing me. The fact is, too, that none of us are immune from this kind of behavior, this kind of attitude. We must be on guard against a prideful, boastful attitude, and we must be cautious to guard ourselves against it. Solomon then mentions a lying tongue. God hates a lying tongue. We should never seek to deceive others. We shouldn't seek to deceive and lie to our family and friends, and we shouldn't do it to people that we don't know something we should avoid altogether. Now, most people have a list, a, a subconscious list of things that they, they deem it's okay and, and appropriate to lie about and then things that we can't lie about. We, we, just, we draw the line right here. But the fact is, a lie is a lie, and God hates them all. God is the embodiment of truth. Of course, he hates when we tell a lie. And lies almost never end with one lie, do they? You have to tell a lie to cover up another lie. And then you have to tell a lie to cover up those lies. And before you know it, you don't even know what the truth is. You have told this story and there's so many lies involved that you don't know where the truth is. And you have a hard time keeping up with it. Have you ever noticed how lies have become commonplace in our society? Lies are just commonplace in our society. It's just second nature for many people to lie. Common business practices include lying. 
I actually, I got to tell you, I ordered a, I ordered a part for a go-kart back in December. So last year, December 27th, had a two days old as a Christmas gift, go-kart brakes. So I get online, that's what we do, we order parts, get online, I order this go-kart part. And on the bottom of the screen, it said, if you order by this date, which I think was December 29th, says it will ship by this date. And I believe the date was January 7th. Well, January 20th rolled around, and I hadn't heard anything. So I called, spoke to a woman, and she said, oh, yeah, she said, well, that's actually on back order. It doesn't look like it's going to ship until about February 17th or something like that. So I hung up with her and waited. I finally got that part for that go-kart on March 28th, three months later. Now, I know that it's, it's difficult to get anything right now. That's just the nature of the world in which we live. But it almost seemed like a lie to me up front to see that on the screen if you order by this date, you're guaranteed to receive it by this date, or it's guaranteed to ship by this date when it never shipped. Gas stations have bait and switch tactics. Y'all probably seen that before. They crack down on some of that. Lying is just all too common. We even lie to each other and our family and friends. We lie to our school teachers about why we didn't get an assignment done. We lie without even knowing it sometimes. How are you? I'm fine, even though your world's falling apart. Never mind, uh, why are you late? Oh, I was stuck in traffic. Never mind the fact that you hit snooze five times this morning. <laughs> there are character lies. I have had people ask me to give uh, letters of recommendation, which I don't mind doing at all. But every now and then you'll get one, and it, it's online where they've already begin, begun to fill some things out. And you're reading through there some questions that the, the applicant has submitted, and you're reading some things that they've said about themselves, and you're thinking, man, this isn't entirely truthful either. <laughs> so there's four types of lies. There's white lies, lies of omission, bold-faced lies, and lies of exaggeration. Guess what? They're all lies. God hates them all. A lying tongue is detestable to a righteous God. Hands that shed innocent blood. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Now, the implication here is not that no one is ever killed. There are certainly things people can do to forfeit their right to life. And I know there are people who will argue that. And I would argue that people who would argue that are people who've never had something so heinous, so atrocious happen to them or a family member that they would think someone would forfeit their right to live. But there are things that people can do that... Would, would forfeit their right to, look, to life. Now, um, none of us are without sin. So there's uh, what's being referred to as the shedding of innocent blood, okay? So someone who's done something worthy of death. We just got done talking about lying. If I tell you a little white lie, you can't sentence me to death, okay? We're talking about something, uh, we're, we're talking about protecting innocent life here. Even a so God hates innocent blood being shed, excuse me. There are people in this world, by the way, who will kill you for $5. Y'all know that? There are people in this world who will kill you for nothing. There are people out there who have no problem shedding innocent blood. And God hates the shedding of innocent blood. This is another reason that we have to have a voice for the unborn, by the way. We have to have a voice for the voiceless. And unpopular, uh, they, the, those children did not have a choice in whether or not to be conceived. We have to have a voice for them. And unpopular opinion here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this, unpopular opinion, e even, in, even in those instances of rape, that child didn't have a choice in that matter. And we have to have, we have to be that voice for that unborn because God hates the shedding of innocent life. He hates it. 
Chances are none of you in this room have ever intentionally murdered someone. If you have, though, you, you likely got away with it because you're here. But we can take this a little bit further, that while it is unlikely that any of you have ever committed murder, we are all guilty. And you say, well, how is that? Well, later on in the New Testament, we see that John says the, that hatred is the exact same thing as murder. Murder begins by hatred. Hatred begins in the heart. Every single one of us at one point or another has harbored hate in our heart towards someone else. Every single one of us. I, I, I have no doubt about that. Let me give you an analogy on this topic. Hate here is likened to, hate which is likened to murder is kind of like gasoline or acid. It's got an approved container that it's got to be in, correct? It's got an approved container it's got to be in. Have any of you ever, ever tried to pour gasoline into a styrofoam cup? It eats right through it. It eats right through it. It will not last. It will eat right through that styrofoam cup immediately. It's got to be stored in a proper container. Hate must be stored in a proper container. Can we hate lying? Can we hate the shedding of innocent blood? Absolutely. That's the proper container. But here's the thing. Hate stored in the wrong container is just like that gasoline stored in the wrong container. It'll eat right through it. Would you ever water your flowers with gasoline or acid? Of course not. It would kill them. Hate will destroy the vessel which it's which it stored in if it's stored improperly, and it will destroy whatever it's poured out upon. God has a desire for us to love and protect the innocent among us. God hates hands that shed innocent blood, and he hates hearts, hates a heart that plots wicked schemes. Matthew 5, 19 says, For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. The heart is the most important organ because it tells the brain what to do. When, we, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's referring to the inner workings of an individual. The things that come out are often what's felt in the heart. Someone gives us a hard time, how do we respond? How do we treat others? When we are angry about something, how do we respond to those around us? Scripture tells us that our walk with God should be a daily walk. We should die to self daily, take up our cross, and follow Him. I think of, of that when I think of verse 18 here, when it says, a heart that plots wicked schemes. Even as believers, this is something we have to guard against, don't we? In our flesh, in our flesh, we want to get revenge. We want someone to know how it feels to be wronged, don't we? In our flesh. That's something we have to guard against, okay? I think about this. Think about your house for just a second. Throughout the week, as you're working and you're coming and going, you're getting kids to school, you're busy, what happens? Laundry piles up, doesn't it? Dishes pile up in the sink. Dirt's tracked in and out. A drink gets spilled. Well, at some point or another, somebody's got to empty that sink. They've got to load the dishwasher or wash those dishes. They've got to do the laundry. Thanks, Katie, by the way, for doing my laundry. I do appreciate it. Somebody's got to do the laundry. Somebody has to sweep the floor. Somebody has to mop. If we're never doing any housekeeping, then what's happening? Eventually, our house is going to get so filthy that we aren't even going to want to live in it, are we? The same thing's true about our heart. As we go throughout our day, as we go throughout our week, sometimes we pick up some things. Sometimes some things happen. If we're not doing some heart keeping, we've got to guard against that. We've got to do some heart keeping just like you would do some housekeeping. I think about uh, Mark, what Martin Luther once said. Martin Luther once said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Same thing's true about our heart. I thought that was such a great analogy. 
We can't help sometimes the things we think about. We can help to focus and dwell upon them, though, can't we? The second, uh, there's a second part to verse 18 there that also says, feet eager to run to evil. That's easy to read over that last part. It's easy to read over that and skip that because we immediately think of the worst things. We think of feet rushing to evil to uh, do physical harm or robbery or assault or something of that nature. But those things certainly apply. But when we are rebellious to authority figures in our lives, what about that? When we're rebellious, what about when we gossip, tell others something uh, that maybe someone trusted us not to repeat? Those things also apply. We also must be cautious against that. We talked about that with the students this morning a little bit. Somebody that hadn't been to church in forever. I, I've seen that time and time again. Maybe you have. Somebody who hasn't been to church in forever, and it's because something was said about them, and even if it contained a partial truth, it hurt their feelings, and they never, they never came back. Maybe never came back to church at all. Now, that's not right, but we have to guard against that because we all are susceptible to getting in our close group of friends, aren't we? And we're a little bit more comfortable talking and we say something that maybe we shouldn't say. And here's the reason I say we have to guard against that. Even if it's true, even if it's true, is it edifying to the church? Is it going to build up that individual? Is it going to tear them down? Even if it's true, we have to guard against that. that those are things that the Lord hates. That's, that's feet rushing into evil. Then Solomon touches on lying again. So earlier he mentioned a lying tongue. And now he mentions in verse 19, a lying witness who gives false testimony. This should be a clear indication how much the Lord despises lying. He gave us early instruction on lying and, how, and now clearly states how much he hates false testimony against one another. Now this does not specifically mean your testimony just in a court of law. Okay, This can mean rumors that get spread and infiltrated throughout the church. We have to guard against this. I've been involved in church long enough to see it. I'm sure you all have too. You've seen somebody who's left because something was said about them. And listen to me. I want to be very clear. This is not a rebuke of Pole Creek, by the way. This is just something the Lord laid on my heart. Maybe I'm the only person in here who needs to hear this. I may be. This is not a rebuke of our church. I think we've got a wonderful church. But this is something we have to guard ourselves against because the Lord hates false testimony against one another. Some of those people who've been hurt by something like that, like I just mentioned a minute ago, leave and never return. Never come back. Shut the door on church and say, I'm done with that. From this moment, from this pulpit I've, I've mentioned before, that there's none of us in here who would like to have our worst moments up on the screen broadcast for the world to see. I know that I sure wouldn't. I wouldn't want that. So when somebody tells us something in confidence or we know something, our feet shouldn't rush to evil to, to tell someone else about it, should they? We should pray for that individual. We should encourage them. We should build them up. Let's not give false testimony against one another. Let's not give half-truth statements against one another. Let us not damage the reputation of someone by telling uh, a half-truth um, if it damages and degrades this individual. One of the main differences between lying here and the lying we see in verse 17 is that a lying tongue in verse 17 is more referring to lying to someone in order to deceive them. In verse 19, it is specifically referring to lying about someone. So there is a difference, but God hates them both. 
We need to be clear about that. There is a difference, but God hates them both. When Jesus was put on trial, there were two witnesses that were brought against him saying that he was a blasphemer. They were false testimonies, and the Lord hates them. Now, finally, we see Solomon wrap up this portion of Scripture with this. He says, "...and one who stirs up trouble among brothers." This is the seventh thing that Solomon lists that God hates. This is almost a summary of the six other things he previously mentioned. Life is hard enough without having brothers in the church stirring up problems against one another, isn't it? Life is difficult enough. We have enough on our plates without someone stirring up trouble within the church against one another. We have a common goal. We should be unified in that common goal. The other issue with this, when we, when we see people creating division and stirring up division, is outside the church, we, we have non-Christians who see that behavior, and they say, I don't want any part of that. You hear how he was talking about so-and-so, he goes to church with them? They're supposed to be, they're supposed to be brothers in Christ, and he was tearing them down. Everything in this passage ultimately leads to stirring up trouble among brothers. Some versions of your Bible will say to sow discord. And that's a farming reference. Sowing discord among brothers. Sowing strife among one another to, to create issues within the body of, of believers. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to walk around with somebody who's constantly creating strife and stirring up trouble. Do you? Any of y'all want to be around somebody who's... And, and you all know somebody like that too. It's like it doesn't matter how things are going, how wonderful the weather is, how perfect the day is. You've got somebody who's always stirring up strife. Somebody who's always complaining about something, somebody's always upset about something, and somebody who's always tearing somebody down. We don't, want to be, we don't want to be a part of that. It's important for us to focus not only on the love of God and the nature of his love, but also on the things that God hates. The things that God would love us to see get, us get rid of ourselves. Today, I want to close with a story. I've got a few minutes. A story that I, that I had actually read before and forgot, but a member shared with me a couple weeks ago. He sent me, he sent me this message, and it was just a story. And it's a story of a, of a pastor. He got a new position in Houston, Texas, okay? And he moves down there. He's going to preach at this new church. And he gets, as he's down there and he's moving, he's got to um, ride the bus some. So he gets on this bus, and he's taking a trip, and he gets back to his seat, and he realizes that the bus driver's giving him a little bit of extra change. Now, it's just a quarter. It's not much, but he, he notices it. So he's sitting there, and he says, I really need to give this back. That was his initial thought. I really need to give this, this quarter back to this bus driver. He gave me some extra change. But then he thought, he said, you know what? I'm not worried about it. It's no big deal. It's just a quarter. It was probably an honest mistake. He doesn't even know if I've realized it. I could have just stuck the change in my pocket. So I, besides, the bus charge, the, the, the fare is way too much money anyway. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep it. So he rides along. He finally gets to his stop, and he's making his way off the bus. And as he gets near the bus driver, he pauses. He feels the conviction of the Lord, and he takes the quarter out of his pocket. And he says, here, you, ac you accidentally gave me some extra change. The bus driver looks at him, he smiles. He says, you're the new pastor in town, right? He said, yeah. He said, I had heard you were. He said, and I was thinking about coming to visit, so I intentionally gave you some extra change to see what you do. 
the pastor gets off this bus and he's just awestruck. And he thinks to himself, Lord, forgive me. He said, I almost sold your son for a quarter. And I read that story several times because that's got such a profound message. He almost sold Jesus Christ for a quarter. How many times have I almost sold Jesus Christ or sold Christ for a little white lie? How many times have I sold Christ because I harbored hatred in my heart towards someone? How many times have I sold Jesus Christ because my feet rushed to evil to tell something that I knew about somebody? I tell you what, I know many of you probably walked in here today and you thought, I'm going to hear a message on the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ because it's Palm Sunday, and that's the expectation. And to be honest with you, that's what I thought two weeks ago myself. And I don't know why the Lord laid this passage on my heart. Like I said, it could have been for you. It could have been just solely for me. But I believe this is a message we need to hear. We need to, we need to recognize and understand that there are things that God genuinely hates, that He despises. And we've got to rid ourselves of it. We've got to constantly, daily evaluate our lives. And like I said, this is not a rebuke of Pole Creek. I want to be very clear with you. I think this is the most wonderful church in the world. I love this church. I love each and every one. Of, I tell my students that all the time. I love each and every one of you. I am thankful to be a part of this. But that doesn't mean that we don't constantly need to be evaluating our own hearts to see where we're at. So I'm going to pray for us. Maybe today you have some counsel. Maybe today you just you want to get right with somebody. I don't know. Maybe it was just for me. and Maybe I need to get right, huh? But I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to close this in prayer, and the altar is open. So join me in prayer.